Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we review 2019 in environmental and energy policy with two amazing guests. Susan Tierney, Senior Advisor at the Analysis Group and Chair of the Board at RFF, and Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President, Director, and Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies Energy and National Security Program. I'll ask Sue and Sarah what they consider as the most interesting policy developments over the course of the year at the federal and state level when it comes to environmental and energy policy. We'll touch on everything from vehicles to electricity to interstate natural gas pipelines and much more. Stay with us. Okay, Sarah Ladislaw and Sue Tierney, uh, two of the most interesting and smartest people in the world of energy and environment. We're so lucky to have you today on our sort of year-end special episode uh, of Resources Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. So nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks, Daniel. So we're going to sort of uh, just talk in a pretty open-ended way over the next 30 minutes or so about what uh, the two of you found most interesting in the world of energy and the environment this year, 2019. But first, uh, I want to ask you both the same question that we always ask all of our guests. So maybe, Sue, let's start with you. Uh, How did you get into the world of working on environmental and energy policy? I grew up in Southern California, and I wondered why you couldn't see the mountains during the summertime. And clearly the smog was a a presence that was dominating in terms of, uh, you know, outdoor activity and other things. And and I love those mountains. Uh, So I was really interested in why that smog was there, why it came in the summer, what it had to do with. And of course, over time I learned it was about cars and sprawl. Uh, and of course, meteorological conditions, but uh, that really set me on a path of trying to figure out what are the reasons why we have environmental pollution and what are the systems that uh, create it and what are the human systems that can solve it. Yeah, that's great. Um, And uh, Sarah, how about you? Yeah, so mine's a bit different. I mean, I, I I grew up in New Hampshire, but that doesn't have much to do with uh, with how I ended up in energy. Uh, but um, I, I really started off with wanting fundamentally two things. One, to understand international relations better, which is what I went to school for. Uh, and then two, you know, sort of like uh, there's always been, I've had a very strong sort of like public service, uh, civil service kind of drive. Uh, and, and what I found in going through undergraduate and then to graduate school as I was looking around at different areas is that I don't sit with one topic very easily. And energy was uh, a lens through which I could explore lots of really interesting public policy issues, global investment issues, cultural issues. It was just, you know, development issues, security issues. It's really this um, great sort of lens to explore intersections between the ways in which different, you know, parts of society or public policymakers versus, you know, the private sector kind of intersect with one another. And then quite frankly, you know, issues like climate change came around, which, uh, were were sort of you know spoke to that sort of civil 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 service sort of need to do a, a greater public good kind of uh, thing and I was kind of hooked and so it's proven to be a really great career for people who don't uh, don't sit still very well in one place. Well, the world is a better place 
that you can't sit still because <laughs> your work <laughs> really does span all of those things so beautifully. Oh, thanks, Sue. That's really nice of you to say so. Yeah, strong second over here. Um, so uh, I, I'm not going to talk too much over the next uh, 25, 30 minutes, uh, but I do want to give a little bit of background uh, before we kind of dive into our conversation. Um, so when I kind of step back and think about 2019 in terms of energy and environmental policy, um, it's been a busy year, uh, as most years are. There's always lots of stuff going on. Um, and so I sort of think about uh, different levels of, of activity. So at the federal level, um, we've mostly seen uh, from the Trump administration efforts to roll back or uh, streamline environmental protections in a variety of areas. Um, there have been some efforts to weaken federal energy efficiency standards uh, in a number of areas, um, efforts to provide more opportunities for fossil fuel development, uh, particularly oil and gas, and maybe to a lesser extent coal. Um, and then there have been some really interesting efforts to try to restrict the ability of state governments, particularly California, uh, and their ability to sort of impose more um, stringent rules than the federal government might otherwise adopt. We've seen this in the, the issue of the waiver that we talked about a few weeks back with Emily Wimberger um, when my, my colleague Kristen Hayes interviewed her for the show. And then, um, the, but at the same time, there's all this like other energy moving in the exact opposite direction. So there are many states that have been setting really ambitious targets to reduce electricity sector uh, CO2 emissions, and in some cases, economy-wide uh, greenhouse gas emissions, aiming to get to zero or net zero within the next you know 30 years, which is super ambitious. Um, we've also seen some states, particularly Colorado and California, start imposing new restrictions on oil and gas development, which I, of course, follow closely because I've done all this work on fracking. Um, and so that's that's kind of a new thing from my perspective, the idea that state governments are actually restricting their own ability uh, to uh, to produce oil and natural gas. And we've seen that in some states where there wasn't really much of an industry to start with, like New York, but in states where there is a substantial industry, like Colorado and California, I think that's kind of a new thing. Um, and so... So there's a million different topics that we could dive into, and I'm loath to pick any of them. So I'm going to make you two do it for me. Um, and I'm just going to kind of ask you about what you thought was the most interesting or what you thought some of the most interesting uh, areas were in terms of environmental and energy policy. And I want to kind of just frame it by starting at the federal government level um, and maybe ask you first, Sue, can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe one or two of the most interesting federal energy or environmental policies that's been moving around this year? Happily. Thanks, Daniel. And uh, your, your lead in was really terrific. And it actually is a perfect segue for the two things that I might mention that have been of interest to me at the federal level. One of them is what you just foreshadowed, which is the growing retrenchment of federal policy uh, and a, a pullback on those air emission regulations. Um, the, the fact that, uh, that the California waiver, which has been an icon in the industry forever and has been a cherished element of transportation policy, certainly in uh, across many, many states. And, and that's really challenging. So the retrenchment, I think of as really a widening gap between where federal policy is pushing these days. Uh, I say pushing because there's obviously many, many court disputes surrounding these issues, but there's just a widening gap between activities of the federal agencies uh, that affect 
energy and environment, and lots of other things. Um, there's a gap between the feds and state policies. There's a gap between civil society, really. We're seeing so much more interest in climate uh, considerations. There's a widening gap between where businesses are making commitments on sustainability um, and certainly on climate. Uh, there's a widening gap, of course, on international relations with the Paris Agreement. So it's it's stunning to see that gap continuing to grow. Um, and uh, that's not a good thing from my point of view. A second one is an interesting uh, set of activities surrounding the Green New Deal proposal. Now, I mention this not because I think that that proposal is realistic or practical or likely to be enacted. I think it is aspirational um, that I just don't think that many of the outcomes that are outlined in that proposal are are doable in the near on the timeframes that um, that the Green New Deal aspires to. But I think it's been incredibly important from a, an agenda setting point of view, from moving uh, climate to a conversation that uh, happens in lots of different settings and venues. It connects the dots between economic uh, activities and economic uh, goals and objectives with things related to the uh, reduction of impacts from uh, greenhouse gas emissions and so forth. So I think that's been a really interesting dynamic. And I think that uh, the Green New Deal idea has made its way into many, many corners of uh, discussions around the country. So for that, I do think it's been an, a notable event this year. And I think I'll stop there. Great. Yeah, those are two, uh, you know, super relevant points to get us started with. Uh, Sarah, let me just kind of ask you the same question and ask you to lay out what you found most interesting and, and also to maybe react to, to uh, Sue's topics. So maybe because I aspire to be like Sue Tierney in sort of uh, insightful analysis and clarity of thought, I picked the same too, but <laughs> with more specificity perhaps. I'll, I'll What I'll do is maybe um, respond to some of them, use, use the points that I had prepared to sort of respond to what Sue thought, and then maybe add a couple other things that I think were a little different from that uh, on the fly. So I, I will say I think that um, on, on the first point about the gap between federal and state level regulation, I picked out specifically the safer, affordable, fuel efficient, uh, safe vehicle rule, which is um, particularly the, the Trump administration's um, proposal to roll back vehicle efficiency standards. I think, you know, that was actually, you know, uh, first put out in, in 2018, so I, I felt like I was cheating a little bit to pick it, but obviously there have been just some really tremendous developments on that front in terms of um, uh, both, you know, uh, the rift that we've seen in the um, auto manufacturers community, the tactics that are being used um, both by the state of California in suing the federal government with 22 other states, but then the federal government opening a Department of Justice investigation against the companies that have worked with California to try and find a compromise position. I mean, I think what is interesting about all this, and then, I'm sorry, and then to back up one, uh, you know, the sort of rumored, you know, potential compromise finalized bill uh, on, on vehicle efficiency uh, uh, that, that the Trump administration will ultimately put forward. 
I think what's really been interesting in this dynamic is that it is showing a, a really core question in our you know, system of energy federalism, which is, are the states pushing the federal government and does the federal government learn from innovation at the state's level? Or are the states finally starting to move so much faster than the federal government is able to underpin um, that it, through its own sort of regulatory structures that we're we're setting ourselves up in the coming years for like a real problem, right? Where a, a, a sort of derived authorities from the states will challenge the preconceived notions of what, you know, federal regulation is able to sort of definitively say, hey, this is what the policy is going to be. And so I think it actually, it it sort of signifies a bigger challenge that we're seeing whether it's in like wholesale power markets or on cross-border natural or you know cross-state natural gas pipelines, a whole bunch of issues where it's just you know good question as to who's who's leading here and who and how will that dynamic play out over time. So I, I thought that 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 is clearly has to be one of the more consequential dynamics. And and quite frankly, like what other you know how is it going to break out into even bigger fights between the states and the federal government as a consequence of not being able to resolve some of these issues. Um, on the Green New Deal, I, I agree uh, with Sue a, a lot. I think that, you know, the way I've been thinking about it is it, this is very akin to, you know, as analysts when people try to ask why is the Trump administration rolling back particular pieces of regulation? Is it because they don't like particular pieces of regulation? Or is it because in general they have a frame about the idea of smaller government, less regulation generally being the the right recipe for broader economic growth in the United States. The Green New Deal is becoming a construct like that for Democrats, right, which is if you aren't taking care of a bunch of ills in capitalism, right, whether it's doing away with it entirely on the extreme or, or kind of figuring out a new path forward that, that remedies different, you know, elements of inequality and environmental injustice, then, then you're not hitting the right bar. And so while the specific provisions of a Green New Deal might not be the direction we have to go in, certainly it's becoming a frame like that that all Democrats have to be able to at least put their their proposals in the context of or address in some way. And so, you know, when the question is what are the consequential things happening, I think even though neither of those things have resulted in policy at the end of the day, um, they, they they certainly are setting up our, our sort of future battles. Well, Sarah, that was brilliant, of course. Um, I really liked especially the way that you talked about the, the challenges between the feds and the states. And I've really observed this in the past year with regard to the gas pipeline question. Uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has this very, very strong authority to approve uh, interstate pipelines. And the FERC has just recently decided that it's not really appropriate to look at uh, or take into consideration state aspirations for their own energy goals. So you look at the fact that recent pipeline decisions and approvals have uh, decided not to look at carbon policies of states or even uh, carbon emissions associated with the indirect use of gas. And that is really setting up a continued huge fight going forward 
uh, not just on the raw preemption question and how that plays out in terms of states' authority to issue federal environmental permits, but also just this question of if, if states have already adopted a policy to reduce fossil use and uh, FERC checks the box on a pipeline uh, approval, uh, there's, there's just really big questions about, uh, you know, these inconsistencies, potential stranded costs, a variety of different things that are going to be ground zero uh, in, in terms of really tough fights in, in the future. Yeah, no, I, I think that that is one of the main questions. It was, it was funny because when we had um, Senators Murkowski and Manchin at CSIS not too long ago, we asked that question within the context of FERC as to not quite so specifically, but, but it, it really raises the question as to how much of this is going to get settled in a litigious structure that is so far tried to not, <laughs> cannot definitively answer these questions and how much of it requires some sort of policy guidance. And that I think that's an area where we're going to need to explore further because clearly there's a lot of policy guidance coming from the state level. I mean, there, you know, there's lots of activity going on, but there isn't from the federal level, and there really isn't a very clear sign that we're going to get that in a in a concrete way, you know, even outside sort of the areas where where there's FERC jurisdiction. So, I do I I don't really have a good line of sight on how that's going to evolve, but I do think something you said, Sue, which is the the risk of stranded assets uh, is is probably part of the equation, right? I mean, if you're if you're not able to reliably um, develop or build infrastructure, then that's kind of what ends up happening. And so it, it'll be interesting to see whether, like how how politically the issue gets pushed to try and find some sort of policy resolution or how long we're going to kind of stay in this middle ground. Exactly. So let me actually take that as a cue to move on to talk about policies at the state level um, and and maybe explore what the two of you thought was most interesting or, or just you know highlight a couple things that you thought were interesting before we do that i want to refer listeners to a report that sue published last month from the analysis group um, the title of the report is FERC's certification of new interstate natural gas facilities um, and i you know that'll be a great resource for people to dive deeper on this topic we'll have a link to it in the show notes of course um, um, but let me transition now, and Sue, let me ask you to start again with just highlighting maybe one or two state government policies that you found particularly interesting uh, that happened over the course of the year. I'd be happy to, and thanks for that shout out for my my recent report. Uh, that's very nice of you, Daniel. I think the theme that I will uh, highlight here is is a very all encompassing one that is underway in many many states, and that's this push toward uh, a one-two punch of decarbonizing the electric sector and then using a low-carbon electricity supply to attack carbon emissions from uh, buildings, transportation, and a variety of other things. So the electrification of uh, all things energy is uh, something of increasing interest to many states. I'm going to use the New York example as uh, as the leading edge on this. Uh, New York passed in June, I think it was, 2019, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. And among the many, many things it does is call for 
a full uh, removal of carbon from the electricity sector by 2040 and a use of electricity to address carbon emissions from vehicles and from appliances and from uh, buildings around the state. It is extremely aggressive in terms of the set of goals and the time frame that it lays out. Um, it is a policy that the state has enacted that puts every state agency on notice of having accountability and responsibility to take carbon emissions into account in its activities. There is a uh, leading role for many of the energy agencies along with the environmental agencies as part of this. So the New York State Energy Research and Development Administration has a key role in setting um, agendas for uh, actions by many, many uh, of the other agencies. And the, the set of tools that are anticipated will be needed is very large, very diverse. Uh, these are policy tools I'm talking about. And in some sense, not yet identified because uh, I really see this as a state where every tool under the sun is going to have to be used if the state really is able to meet the goals that have been set out in the law. And uh, so I think this is something that is emblematic of a, a lot of pieces that other states are uh, putting in place. Massachusetts has a uh, Global Warming Solutions Act, has a famous act on carbon emissions reductions. Colorado has just enacted uh, a, a climate approach. And so we see many states using this one-two punch of clean electricity and electrification as being uh, an important strategy for addressing climate change. So I think that for me is um, a, big, a big body of activity across the states and the states are looking at each other to, to take ideas and to see where successes are landing um, around the country. Uh, yeah, so I, I it's quite similarly, I think because we, we recently did this together, um, I, I think that that sort of uh, that one-two punch is a really great description of a category of activity going on in, in the states that will inform hopefully at some point, you know, federal policy, I guess, um, but certainly is sort of driving the direction of, of what many different states are doing and thinking about. I, I had a similar kind of take on things, but I cut it a little bit differently, which is um, I do I do think the most interesting and probably least talked about phenomenon at the state level is is the sort of emergence of these new clean energy standards, which is part of the strategies that, that um, Sue just talked about. Um, and I think they're interesting for a few reasons. One, um, that a lot of them are, you know, aspirational and declaratory in nature. So by, you know, aspiration to have clean or carbon-free electricity generation by, you know, 2050 or 2040, depending on the different states, exists, you know, in eight, eight different states in the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico now. So. Um, clearly, and then, you know, clearly a number of other legislatures are considering doing things like this. And so I, I think it's been interesting to see because this is that next wave of, you know, what comes after renewable portfolio standards and for all the good and ill of renewable portfolio standards, 
you know, based on how they're designed, they've just been a huge part of what's created renewable energy markets in the United States. And so while it might not be um, as attractive as a, you know, economy-wide carbon tax for, you know, people who, who want to see, you know, bigger economy-wide drives towards reducing emissions, um, it is what what's what we have what we and what we've have had so i i do think it's interesting to see and to track um what the one you know how many other states will be able to put something like this in place and what are the reasons why they're doing it and then two a lot of design elements inside these policies that are are yet to be determined so not a lot of detail around how they're going to be achieved and so you know, whether or not these are um, complementary to um, some of the zero emissions credits that have been uh, put in place to, to bolster nuclear power, what kind of, you know, carve outs exist within within the context of these policies. I think all of that is going to be pretty important in shaping, uh, you know, the future for, for renewable or clean uh, electricity going forward. So I, I think it's really hard to you know, to to not sort of highlight that as one of the more important and interesting things um, happening at the state level. Quite similarly, I would say, um, back on that Green New Deal concept, right? You know, so someone's got to put some details around what the Green New Deal is, and my colleague uh, Lachlan Carey just put out something uh, talking about what the the new sort of federal legislative proposal was on uh, public housing that, you know, is kind of one of the first things that we've seen on the federal side that kind of fleshes out the Green New Deal. But we have seen, you know, things at the state level. So several, you know, several different states, New York, Maine, Illinois, you know, California, um, and some others have their own version of what a Green New Deal is. And so I think, you know, looking at what those are and how those get implemented to the extent that the sort of political saliency of the Green New Deal um, continues to resonate, you know, what that actually means in practice is going to be pretty important. Uh, and so I think tracking some of what, you know, what's going on at the state level on that front is also um uh, is also an important thing to do as well. I think the, the last one that I wanted to flag is the Transportation Climate Initiative, which uh, just had an announcement earlier this week about you know some of the Reggie states um, getting involved in a you know extension of a cap and trade program that would begin to start you know covering the transportation sector. Um, you know, I mean, I think that you know there's there's uh, again pros and cons of uh, of this approach as well, and and questions about you know how transferable it will be to other places. But you know, to the extent that Reggie has for a long time served as as a, a, a sort of guidepost or a, a, an example that people point to when they're thinking about what a cap and trade program looks like, how does one get started, how does it raise ambition or expand? The Transportation Climate Initiative is another one of those. Um, initiatives that I think is important to watch for those same types of uh, of learnings, and we don't have a ton of examples of that, so I think that that's another important one to think about. Your your points are extremely insightful, Sarah, and hearkening back to the first part of our conversation, it, it's really interesting to see the ways in which these state-by-state -state policy designs are occurring. You highlighted this, and the the good news is that states are taking the reins, uh, deciding their own destiny as best they can with the tools that they have available to them. But there's often this inattention to uh, the next door state's design of its policies. And 
the, the fact that Reggie and TCI have been approaching this in a multi-state way is great. Uh, the, the, the potential thing that people need to be really concerned about is once these state-by-state -state different policy designs are adopted in states, it becomes harder sometimes to find a harmonized federal solution uh, because people get really attached to their way of doing things. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I love the work that is done at RFF to think about those issues of leakage across state boundaries and looking for ways to harmonize uh, both across policies across sectors, but across states. And so there's a lot of really interesting analytic work to be done here, as you indicated. Yeah, I think that's a, I, I, I completely agree. And I, you know, what's interesting is one of the, the things that we were looking at um, in our Energy in America project, which Daniel, you participated in over the last year, is, is some of these questions about, you know, it, it, related to this, you're starting to see states realize that in order to drive some of their economic growth strategies, if they work alone, they they kind of cannibalize on one another. But if they, particularly when it comes to like creating innovation clusters and other things like that, but if they, or quite frankly, even if you're doing hydrocarbons development, right? I mean, you kind of need to know how you're going to get your resources out of wherever you are if you're landlocked. And so, you know, there 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 is a lot that states are starting to kind of realize on some of these issues that like they actually do have to coordinate a little bit. And I actually wonder if we'll see much more of this, you know, sort of regional dynamics where states are figuring out, you know, on the sort of energy policy side, particularly to the extent that it has a growth dimension or a jobs dimension or, you know, those types of things that, that they, they, if they work across purposes, they actually may be, you know, ruining some of the potential for the entire region. Whereas if they work together, then maybe they can achieve some of the economic growth potential goals for which they were sort of harnessing energy development and I think that that's where it hasn't necessarily translated is into infrastructure, right? I mean, people are still fighting tooth and nail on infrastructure on very localized issues, but regional economic development, you know, is 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 a really important way of looking at um, energy development stories in some of these places. And so I, I I'm sort of curious how much more kind of regional cooperation we'll see before even before we see you know any kind of federal coordination and um, so that's I, I think that's still kind of an open question for the coming year. Right. Yeah, there are so many fascinating things to dig into and to like each, each one of these topics. There are so many questions I want to explore, but we are uh, pretty much at time already. And so I am going to move us on to our uh, last question, which we affectionately call top of the stack. So what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Uh, something that you really enjoyed this year related to energy in the environment. Um, and I'll start with something that's a little tangential. It's a it's a band that I just learned about, even though I think they've been around for like 40 years. <laughs> it's a band called uh, Riders in the Sky. So it's a cowboy band and they have all these songs about the old west. And so whenever I listen to them, I'm sort of reminded of the times that I've spent in West Texas traveling around the dusty, uh, you know, 
springs and uh, and deserts. Um, and there's lots of yodeling. Uh, there's lots of wonder and appreciation for the natural world in those songs. Um, and my one year old really likes it. So um, great. if you're not if you're not into Riders in the Sky, I would recommend it. It's a, it can be a little silly, but um, but I think it's pretty great. Um, how about you? Let's go in the same order. Sue, uh, you first. What's at the top of your stack? Well, there are actually two books at the top of my stack, and I've just finished listening to both of them. So I'm I'm taking advantage of the opportunity to have this microphone to tell you about two things. They couldn't be more different. Um, I'll start with the edgy one, which is um, Rachel Maddow's new book called Blowout, which is really yes. about the oil and gas industry and, uh, and Russia, uh, among many other things, but very, very interesting. Um, and of course, it always, as I said, is edgy with Rachel's uh, tone and style, but it's that it is a highly researched book and very, very, uh, very intriguing. The second one is really different. It's a book, a novel called The River by Peter Heller. And this is a story of two young men who go on a canoe trip in northern Canada and uh, find themselves stuck because of a wildfire that gets in their path. And it's really a beautifully written story about wilderness and human um, human relations and uh, the outdoors and, and risks, natural risks that occur, and then also about human survival. It's really beautiful. Yeah, those sound great. And Blowout, actually, I have that literally at the top of my stack as well. I'm, I'm a couple chapters in, so, uh, so I'll be interested to, to see where it goes. Um, Sarah, how about you? What's at the top of your stack? In the spirit of like the new year, um, I want to say, I think uh, two things that I find interesting, and, and you went tangential, so I get to do it too, Daniel. I guess yeah. that's how the rules go. Um, two pieces, one of somewhat policy-relevant work, uh, and then one sort of from the podcast, uh, not podcast, I think, I guess it's a, watching a, a YouTube recording of a conversation that took place, that both of which I think are good. The first is um, Marco Rubio uh, put out a report called China 2025 uh, that looks at, uh, through the Small Business uh, Committee in the Senate, that looks at economic competition related to the United States uh, and China. And I find it fascinating because it is uh, a description of uh, you know, Marco Rubio, a relatively conservative individual, um, you know, quoting some fairly progressive-minded economists thinking about industrial competition and the fact that, you know, China is trying really hard to win in particular technologies and maybe we're not. And I think this is going to be like a really dominant theme in the next couple of years. And so I think that I, I'm always shocked that people don't know uh, about that report and, and some of the sort of things that are said there about the potential need for the United States to think about uh, energy and other things in terms of industrial competition. So I recommend that to people. And then the podcast or uh, sort of, you know, episode that I watched on YouTube um, was a debate uh, or conversation that the Breakthrough Institute hosted between uh, Jerry Taylor of the Niskanen Center and Professor Leah Stokes, um, in which they tried to have a really civil dialogue about things that they disagreed upon, particularly the Green New Deal and the political efficacy of uh, of it as a strategy. 
Um, and, you know, right now, the end of the year, particularly with the political environment we're in, I think it's really nice to watch people who disagree with each other try to talk to each other nicely uh, and use, you know, sort of facts rather than volume uh, to have that debate. And so I think that, you know, just in the interest of, you know, good civic hygiene, uh, that's definitely something I'm also recommending to people these days. Yeah, that's a wonderful recommendation and a really nice note to end on. And hopefully we can go into... 2020 with a little bit more civility and kindness uh, all around. I could vote for that. Well, you've set the tone for that with this podcast. So thank you very much, Daniel. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks, Sue. Um, Okay, great. So let's close it out. Uh, Once again, Sue Tierney and Sarah Ladislaw, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, So fascinating to hear your comments and thoughts about the year and energy and the environment. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. So much fun. Thank you. Happy New Year. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. 